Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. What do you think love is? I think love is being kind. Love is like somebody's more important. Um, love, it's like the word like, except it's love and you love, well, like them two times more. So then you call it love. So love is like like times two. Yeah. How do you know when someone loves you? You just know from your heart. But what does your heart say to you? It just says this person is kind. They could give you a present. They could give you a hug. They could help you. For me, it feels like they're letting me into their heart and letting me know that they love me and that we're friends or we're very close. What does love feel like? I think it feels like that you know that you're not just alone, crumbled up in a piece of paper. People love you. It feels like a warm, big fire. Beyonce? You look like Luther Vandross. Oh, but make it fashion. But you ain't heard that from me. Fierce. Stop. You see, when you do <laughs> clownery, the clown comes back I to bite. I ain't gonna sleep because of y'all. It's Britney, bitch. Y'all not gonna get we no sleep because of me. But I ain't gonna get sleep because of me. Who said that? Welcome to Back Issue, a weekly podcast that revisits formative moments in pop culture that we still think about. This week, we are talking about love, which Kirk Franklin taught us is a word that comes and goes. 
but few people really know what it means. (laughs) (laughs) Love, I tell you, love is that confidence. We don't know love like we should. Why do you think you need a boyfriend, Madison? Because I love boys. Everybody say love. Love. That's the way love goes. Each week, we'll go back into the past and revisit unforgettable moments we all think we remember. And learn what they can teach us about where we are right now. (laughs) I'm Tracy Clayton. And I'm Josh Quinn. In a world where movies and television brainwash Josh and Tracy into thinking Brahm would be the best night of their lives. Oh my God, Tracy, prom is going to be so much fun. I know, and we'll probably get to go with people that we're actually attracted to. And someone C-list is probably going to perform, like Cisco. Ooh, or maybe Blue Cantrell. I love her. Unfortunately, they had been lied to several times. This prom would not be the cinematic dream they expected. Ugh, this music is whack. All these people are too. Ugh, especially her. She really get on my nerves. I hate it here. It wouldn't even be worthy of a direct-to-DVD release, like all those Bring It On sequels no one ever watched. Except for the one with Solange. That one is canon. Oh, why did all of the movies we grew up watching lie to us like that? I feel so betrayed by culture. And Hoodwink. And Bamboozled. That betrayal and bamboozlement would impact their ideas of love for years to come. More on that coming soon to earbuds near you. Like real soon. Like right now. Rated R for Relatable. So Tracy. So Joshua Louise. <laughs> Today we're talking about love. Ew, why? <laughs> I mean, I mean, ooh, ooh. I mean, it's apropos of absolutely nothing, but I've been thinking about it a lot lately. I'm so sorry to hear that. I walk this road alone. You sure do, because I'm staying right here. (laughs) (laughs) But I have an idea of who we should talk to. Ooh, who? Writer, activist, living legend Darnell Moore. Ooh. He's the director of inclusion strategy for content and marketing at Netflix. Uh Uh-huh. He wrote a beautiful autobiography called No Ashes in the Fire in 2018. And I think he has a lot of thoughts about what it means to be in love, how to find it, and what it looks like. He absolutely does. And he also doesn't have any of my bitterness, so. (laughs) (laughs) This is great. I feel like my whole journey of adulthood was like trying to go back and systematically check off a list of things that I had learned but needed to unlearn Mm. one by one. Mm -hmm. I feel like this is something that I say all the time, but it's always relevant, so I can't help it. Mm -hmm. This is something that me and my therapist talk about a lot. It's supposed to be this way. It's supposed to look this way. Yeah. And my therapist would be like, why? And I'm just like, I, I, don't, I don't know, because it is, you know? <laughs> I don't know. Because I saw it like that one time. Because I saw it like that every time. And there are yeah. always terrible, toxic relationships and situations that we never get to the toxicity of because they're so romantic, because they're so mm. just dreamy and the butterflies and fuck all that shit. Yeah. 
for example, I never really saw myself reflected in the media that I was watching, especially in the love stories that I was watching. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, I thought that even though none of the rest of it applied, for some reason, the prom (laughs) story would, and I would have the most littest prom ever. (laughs) Maury told me that that is a lie. (laughs) It wasn't that. I, like, literally went with my best friend, which, I mean, was fun. It sounds fun. It was fun, but my expectation for prom night was more, like, very special episode of Degrassi. (laughs) You know, like, you look over to your date and you're like, this is the best night of my life. And then the killers start playing and you guys drive off down a hill with all these lights showing behind you, you know? And, like, it was not like that. It was more like me and my friend cracking jokes all night, which was fun. But had I not had these expectations of, like, what it was supposed to be like that were given to me from the media that I was consuming, Mm -hmm. I would have been able to appreciate it for what it was as opposed to what it wasn't. Right, right. I was kind of in the opposite situation where I had absolutely no expectations because I was kind of dreading the whole thing. Okay. Because at this time I had like unchecked rampant social anxiety, right? So (sighs) this is a social event where I get like all dressed up, which I didn't do in school every day. And I was like, I don't want to hear nobody making a fuss about, oh my God, I'm dressed up and this and that. Mm -hmm. But you know what? I did what I was quote unquote supposed to do. I got asked to go to prom by this boy who was tall and eh, was handsome then. Now I see the <laughs> era of my ways. Um, he was just tall and brown and played basketball. Ooh. So, you know, like he's like the type. And I was like, oh, my gosh, did everything right, quote unquote. And then it was just whack. I'm at a dance with everybody that I went to school with and was afraid to talk to. And now we just dressed up doing the same shit and spent money to do it. Yeah. So basically, prom was a lion-ass liar, and the truth was not in it. But the fucked up thing is that TV started lying to me way before prom. Like, it started lying to me when it was like, these are the boys that you should have crushes on. And I was like, okay, then I guess I'm in love (laughs) with Mario Lopez and Genuine and Bumper Robinson. Mm -hmm. And I'll be sure, because they are all fair-complected, and they have, quote-unquote, good hair. And that's all I seen on TV, right? So I actually did think that I was like in love, love with Mario Lopez. <laughs> I was like, is this, is this what it feels like? <laughs> when doves cry? <laughs> Light skin doves? <laughs> with wave nuvo? Drag me, I deserve it. This is super interesting. Even though I watched a bunch of television mm-hmm. and a bunch of movies, I didn't have any TV crushes like that. You had to have at least one somewhere. Right? I mean, maybe, but, like, I never really felt the space to really have a crush. Mm. You know the feelings of having a crush? Yeah, I hate it. I never had that. And it was because I grew up queer. Yeah. And so it felt different. Yeah, this reminds me of conversations I've had with my other queer friends who were like, I didn't know how to have a crush right. on somebody. Because, like, for us straights, your starter kit is on TV. It's in movies. Right. And they were just like, I had nothing to model. That's very true. Like, I remember everyone else in my class having 
these moments where they like wrote down this boy's name a thousand times or mm-hmm. they used to have these binders that had a clear film on top of them so that you could slide pictures oh, into yeah. them and they would put pictures of their crushes on the front yeah and i would put pictures of people that i admired mm-hmm. i had pictures of beyonce or whitney houston right but like it wasn't the same sort of butterfly in your stomach type of thing it was just more so like these are the people that I wish I could talk to instead of the people around me. <laughs> mm, right. So it was more of a platonic crush and not exactly. a romantical crush. Exactly. I see. And I really didn't have models for romantic versions of queer love mm. growing up in media. Like, I can remember the first time that I ever saw Queer as Folk on Showtime. It was these seven or eight friends, all of them white. (laughs) There's like a lesbian couple. And it was probably like the first time that I saw queer love and queer sexuality graphically displayed in front of me. So what do you like to do? Do? I don't know. Watch TV. Play Tomb Raider. (laughs) I'm in bed. Oh. And I remember watching it and listening for the garage door to see if my parents were coming home Uh, so that I could change the channel because uh I already had a little bit of shame in terms Mm. of consuming it. I felt the same way when I watched The L Word for the first time and I was just like, oh my God. Mm. But nothing really prepared me for that first time that I ever saw the show Noah's Ark on Logo. Mm. I just remember being in my college dorm room and seeing these four Black queer men on my screen. Keyword is Black. Black and queer. Mm. And keyword lead. Mm. I'd never seen that before. In the show, Noah's Ark, like the Bible, but in this case, it's Noah's Ark with a C, so like his story arc. You meet Noah, who's the lead character. He has his chosen family, three great friends, and he meets his love interest in episode one. Think the Gina to his Martin, the Lawrence to his Issa. But him and his friends, they don't know if he's gay or not, this love interest. And so he tries to get a little bit of advice from his friends, and they tell him to go on a scavenger hunt through his house in order to find gay clues. Let's say I did want to snoop. What exactly would I be looking for? Signs of obvious gayness? Start with photos. Are there any framed pictures? If so, do they feature mostly shirtless male friends? No. Ooh, the whiz. That's pretty gay. Forget that. Where's the porn? Books? The Greatest, My Own Story by Muhammad Ali. Straight. Eight. Walk on the Wild Side by Dennis Rodman. Uh, gay. So I got a groove back, Terry McMillan. That's a tough one. Either he's gay... Or he's straight and using it to snag poontang. (sighs) Well, this isn't helping at all. It was like Golden Girls because they read each other all the time, but Sex in the City because you got to see them in their intimate lives and their lives with each other, but black and queer. And... All of this is really bringing up for me, it's really making relevant for me, this idea of queer time. It was coined by queer scholar Jack Halberstam in 2005 in the book In a Queer Time and Place. And it's basically the idea that for queer people, time works a little bit differently. Because for straight people, there's a straight line to adulthood. Mm -hmm. But for queer people, because of the different obstacles that they face and the different types of prejudices that they face and the different spaces that they find themselves in, the line to adulthood is a little less straight. Mm -hmm. And so 
people end up having a lot of really formative life moments, like the first time that they date yeah. or the first time that they're in a relationship, much later than their straight counterparts. Right, and I right. absolutely 100% identify with this sort of feeling, mm-hmm. but it felt at odds with what was happening on the screen in front of me and what TV told me my milestone should have been mm. had I not been queer. Everyone kind of feels like, oh my God, like, am I the first person to go through this? Right. But I think that it's especially true for queer kids. I can kind of relate because I was a late bloomer, but mm-hmm. not because of, like, societal stuff. I just had um, raging and rampant social anxiety. Fair. And diagnosed generalized anxiety disorder. Mm-hmm. But even though I wasn't prepared to, like go out and date and take all of these steps like my friends were taking, I at least had a road map mm-hmm. before me, right? I wasn't hitting any of my milestones, but I knew that they were there. And so then when I was being mean to myself later, I knew how to focus. Yeah. <laughs> Just like, bitch, you ain't yeah. got no man. You ain't going on <laughs> dates. What's wrong with you? You know what I mean? Yeah. And I had the same road map, but it was in a different town. A queer town. Mm. (laughs) So the streets didn't match up, but I still was able to read how toxic this roadmap was. I mean, at least later when I looked back. Yeah. And that gives me an idea. I think we need to break down some of these relationship models that we originally were in love with, that we thought we were learning from. Mm. And then we had to learn that we needed to unlearn from. Okay. With a game called Couldn't Be Me. All right. The title got me. I'm in. I'm sold. Okay, I'm going to give you iconic couples from romantic storytelling history, TV, film, literature. Mm -hmm. And you can tell me whether this is a good model of a relationship. And if not, you have to say why it absolutely couldn't be you. I'm going to predict that my answer to all of them is no. But see if I'm right. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, first couple, Martin and Gina. Damn it, Gina! Okay, I have strong feelings about this particular couple because number one, Martin is one of my favorite shows of all time. And number two, when I was younger, like that is the kind of relationship that I wanted because it was funny. Like as an outsider, I'm looking at this couple and I'm just like, oh man, I laugh all the time. It would be so fun. You know, Martin's goofy, Gina's goofy, I'm goofy. This is what I want, this is what I need. Then I get older and I'm looking at Martin's immature ass. I'd have been done left you. Are you kidding me? Okay. It's funny because he's a fool. It's funny because he's a buffoon, right? He's a chauvinist. Mm. He's petty. Mm -hmm. He's really insecure. He never lets people stay in his house. Never. Which, I mean, sometimes I wish I was mean enough to (laughs) keep out of my house. So I aspire to that. But he's a terrible person. And he always gets his comeuppance, right? Like he does yeah. something stupid and then he's punished for it somehow. Mm-hmm. But then he's rewarded by Gina, who is a high powered, executive, gorgeous, light skinned, which is what was in then. I'm just gonna mm-hmm. say it, I'm just gonna call it out. Yeah. And she rewards him putting her through hell with staying with him. No, no, no. Let me tell you what you're not gonna do too many times. You're not going to embarrass me in front of my friends. Mm. You're not going to call my best friend a dog. In front of me. In front Mm. of me and in front of her. Are you kidding me? Girl, I am a bullet in the chamber. Lock and loaded. Do you want to pull my trigger pan? You want to pull the trigger pan? Oh, man, pull the trigger pan! I will, Martin. Because from what Gina tells me, you've been shooting blanks. Is there a particular moment you think exemplifies their relationship the best? That proposal that he gave her 
would have been the last time he ever saw my black ass, ever. Wait, what happened? Woo! Okay. So what happened was Martin and Gina are together, you know, and like typical woman, quote unquote, Gina's ready to get married. She's dropping all these hints mm. about getting an engagement ring. At some point, Martin bends down to tie his shoe. She turns around and starts hyperventilating because she thinks he's going to propose. Baby, I know what you're doing. I know what you're doing. Martin, oh, Gina, chill, baby, chill. Uh-uh. I'm running the show. So she's like that type, just like thirsting for marriage. Because if you don't have marriage, are you really a woman? Mm. Are you valid? Do you matter? (laughs) (laughs) So they're talking about it. Martin gets annoyed. And he's just like, you know what? Quit pressuring me, Gina. Damn. Blah, 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 blah. And so then Gina's like, fine. I got a job in L.A. I'm going to take it. And I'm moving across the country. Mm. Martin is like, she ain't going nowhere. She ain't going nowhere. On the day that she's supposed to leave, right? He shows up at her empty ass apartment. Gets on his knee and says, Fine, baby, Gina, okay, fine. Please, all right? Your little plan worked. What are you talking about, Martin? Gina, please, here, sit. Okay, baby? You plotted and you schemed and clank, clank. You finally got me, Gina. Okay, fine. Gina, I will marry you. Damn. I mean, are you happy now? (gasps) That was the first proposal. That would have been the last word you ever said to me. What type of jagged edge ass proposal? There's no possible way that we can back together. Because right. I no longer trust your love for me or your devotion to me. You're only here because your ass don't want to be alone. Right. And you don't want me to be mad at you because you're still trying to get some. And you just told me. Exactly. And you know what? What is always true, what one person won't do for you. Another person will. I'm out. First thing smoking, child. Done. So in conclusion, couldn't be me. Okay, okay. Could not. Ready for the next couple? I think so. Okay, so we got sports. Mm-hmm. We got Sanaa Lathan. Mm-hmm. You got Omar Epps playing love and basketball. Play for my heart, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you remember the scene where Quincy gets mad at Monica because she won't, like, leave her dorm room because she's under, like, curfew for her team? That night you wanted to talk about your dad, I had curfew. What was I supposed to do? Stay. If I stayed, I wouldn't be stark. Well, at least you got your priorities straight. I never asked you to choose. You never have to. I'm a ball player. If anybody knows what that means, it should be you. If basketball is all you care about, why are you boning me? It couldn't be me because there is this message, this narrative that love is supposed to be unconditional, it conquers all, is to be weighed above all else. And if you have to suffer and struggle to stay in this relationship, that's how you know it's true love. Mm -hmm. That's how you know it's real and it's going to last. Look and listen. Unconditional love is great if you're a puppy. Or a child. Sure, we'll throw babies in there too. (laughs) Although... Draw on my wall one more time and we'll see. We'll see what happens. But, I mean, like, that idea is what keeps people miserable for so long and in miserable relationships and feeling like if they demand more from a partner or if they leave one partner who's not providing for them in some other way, that it makes them, like, bad or weak or they wasn't really in it like that to win it to begin with. Mm -hmm. No, there are absolutely conditions on my love. You know why? Because my love is worth it. This should be a 70s soul song. Okay. Love is not enough. Mm. I'm sorry. Those people don't always deserve access to you and to your heart. And you're allowed 
to say that. You're allowed to kick people out of your space. And you know what? You can love them all day long till the cows come home. But that doesn't mean you have to be with them. It doesn't mean that you have to be miserable every day of your life because some TV show tells you it's how it should be because suffering is a thing that gets us closer together. Look, I suffer enough on my own. I don't need you for that. Yeah. The fact that Sanaa Lathan is expected to take a backseat to his success Mm -hmm. and that's what a successful marriage and a successful relationship is supposed to look like in this storyline lost me. A good, healthy relationship would never require anyone to dim their light. Exactly. And plus, he knew that there were consequences for her if she was supposed to, like, sneak out. He just didn't care. He didn't give a shit. Compromise, okay? Communicate. Mm -hmm. What if she had said, I hear you, and I understand that this is very urgent for you right now. Here's my situation. Mm -hmm. How can we meet in the middle? At the half-court line. (laughs) I just did a sport. (laughs) (laughs) You did do a sport. That was good. I can't remember if or when I've ever seen that happen in a situation where, like, the stakes are so high. And it's always the woman. Right. It's always she who suffers. Yeah. That is bullshit. It is all by design. It's all on purpose. Okay, Tracy, one more. Okay, let's both answer this one. Okay. Romeo and Juliet. <gasps> but soft, what light through yonder window breaks? It is the east. And Juliet is the sun. Wow, I really did pay attention in English class. Like, I'm surprised. Good job. (laughs) (laughs) So, Romeo and Juliet. I'm sure you know the story. If you don't, here are a few tidbits. So you have Romeo. You have Juliet. So you got Leo and Claire Dance. Yes, basically. (laughs) (laughs) You got Desiree singing as they look at each other through the aquarium. Can stand thousand trials. The strong will never fall. <laughs> okay, so they fall in love, but they're from feuding families. Juliet is 13. Shakespeare actually never says how old Romeo is. But it's assumed or at least portrayed that he's like around 16 or so. But he could have been fucking 21, 47. Who knows? Who knows? Right. So they fall in love. They hatched this plan to be together. Mm-hmm. It was a terrible plan, probably because Juliet was 13. You know, oh you don't really God. have the part of your brain that can like look around corners uh, is not developed yet. This is awful. So the plan is that Juliet is going to pretend to commit suicide. Romeo rolls up. He's like, oh, shit, my boo is dead. He actually commits suicide. Oh. Juliet pops up. She's like, oh, shit, my boo is dead. And then she commits suicide. The end. <laughs> Yo, where were you? I, you need to write spark notes. Do I? <laughs> I'll keep it in mind. I will keep yeah. it in the back of my Second mind. Second career. But it's so wild because this is like a love story of the ages, right? Yeah. Star-crossed lovers. It's been remade mm-hmm. so many times. It's referenced in love songs. And like, when you think about it, this is what we're supposed to aspire to? Yeah. That's a bad idea. This is actually dangerous. You know what I mean? From the top to the bottom. Ruta to the tuta. And back to the top. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I think it's clear that it couldn't be neither of both of us. Couldn't because be. Because I got shit I want to do tomorrow. I'm trying to go on vacation again, you know? Yeah. I want to get a puppy one day. I can't do none of that shit if I sacrifice myself because <laughs> without true love, your life's not worth living. Listen, what if you fell in love with yourself? These models are fucked up. 
Like, they're not right. They are. But it raises the question, if we can't look to these models, where should we look? Mm, That is a good question. Yeah, and I've been asking myself this a lot. And it sounds like a question for Darnell Moore, who's an activist, writer, Mm. and currently the director of inclusion strategy for content and marketing at Netflix. He has a new podcast called Being Seen, and we're going to talk to him after the break. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. And I want to tell you about a podcast I think you're going to love. Who Weekly is a podcast about everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Does celebrity news stress you out? Are there too many people you've literally never heard of? Check out Who Weekly, a podcast hosted by Lindsay Weber and me, Bobby Finger. Each episode goes deep into the biggest Who Liberty stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we'll answer the most burning listener queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly on the Odyssey app or wherever else you get your podcasts. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now, I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully, no one will die on stage tonight. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. For love to exist, there has to be equity, there has to be justice, there has to be invitation. That's Darnell Moore. He's a writer, he's an activist, he's the host of this new podcast called Being Seen, and he sat down with us to talk about love, life, and the pursuit of healing. So, you know, like, I grew up in a family with a daddy who said he loved my mom, but he beat the shit out of her. That's not love, right? And I want young people to know, it isn't just when I feel the giggly-wiggly butterflies in my stomach, like, that. that's cool. That's, that's love. But you know what love really is? When forgiveness and accountability and the push to keep going is present, that to me is love, not just this butterfly stuff that you can feel that and still treat people like shit. You can do that. You can, you know, and that's, that's what America, that's what America's love is to us. We can't do to others what the system does to us. Drag me, drag me from my home, just up and down the street. In the television and the film that you watched growing up, were there times that you saw relationship models that you could identify with? Mm. When I was growing up, there were no formidable forms of, like, Black queer love available to me. Even in literature, I read books that centered white people and talking animals. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, Black love was absent. Mm. Black queer love was absent. So I didn't have access to it. I mean, I dreamt it into being, right? Like, in my imagination, in my mind. Mm. Mm. So when do you feel like you first saw yourself generally represented in pop culture? Noah's Ark. 
<laughs> Noah's Ark is a big moment for me. Yes. Like, a huge moment for me. At that moment, I was in my first sort of official relationship. I had a relationship for a dude before that, which was a mess. Mm-hmm. I, I don't even claim that anymore. <laughs> I feel that. <laughs> It was practice. Mm-hmm. Right? So my first real relationship where love was present, Wade and Noah's relationship mimicked ours in so many ways. I mean, we were living together mm. in the hood <laughs> and in love. I remember like literally sitting in my college dorm room and being like, what is this? <laughs> it was just like, wow. Same. It was a gift. Yeah. You know, mm. it was a gift. I love that you said it that way, that it was a gift. I feel like a thing that I'm learning as I continue to grow up, though I am um, nearing 40, (laughs) is that telling your own story is a gift that you give somebody else. And in 2018, you wrote a memoir called No Ashes in the Fire. I want to talk about how the genre of memoir lends itself to doing for others what Noah's Ark did for you. Literally, when I was writing, I would close my eyes and I, I imagined myself standing in the back of a theater it was empty except for the presence of one little boy mm. with nappy ass, beautiful hair. Mm. And all I could see was the back of his head. And that's why I wrote to in the book. And I'm thinking, out of the things that I've been able to sort of experience in my life, what stories, what themes might be relevant to this young person and to the people in his life? And in that way, it was a gift, right? Like it was a gift to my younger self, to younger Black folk. Mm. It was a gift to the caregivers around me. It was a gift to my city, Camden, New Jersey. Shout out to Camden, woo! <laughs> Which is often um, scandalized mm. in, in yeah. terms of representation. Like, nobody trying to talk good about my city. So it was a love letter mm. back. And it was a gift to my family, to my mama. Aww. In the same way that I think Noah's Ark allowed me to find myself in the stories of these characters, I hope that folk were able to find themselves in this one. Can I ask a question that Tracy asked me that I felt like was really hard for me to answer? Who was your first pop culture crush and when did it happen? Prince. Mm. Mm. My aunt lived in this penthouse in Atlantic City when stars would come in to do their concerts and the helicopters would drop people off at the rooftops. And I swear I would sit up there and I would imagine, (laughs) yo, this is so funny, but I would be in that house by myself imagining that Prince was being dropped off <laughs> <laughs> and that he was coming to meet me. And I was just like... <laughs> yes. I mean, Purple Rain? Like, what? Yeah, yeah. Oh, definitely Prince. <laughs> I know that prior to Noah's Ark, a lot of the like media references and touch points that I had were rooted in trauma. Mm-hmm. Boys Don't Cry wrecked me for like six months. The Matthew Shepard story, I remember sneaking and watching that and being a wreck. Mm-hmm. One time you said that queerness is magic, and I love mm. framing it in that that direction instead. So can you talk to me a little bit about what it means to make media that honors that magic and affirms queer Black folks that watch it? One of the difficult aspects of writing No Ash in the Fire was the reality that I would have to write a complex human story that had both pain and joy. Yeah. I would be lying if I would write um, a story that absented the shit that I endured Mm -hmm. as a Black person coming up in a white supremacist world, as a Black queer person coming up in a world that is antagonistic to queer and trans and non-binary people. Like, it would be impossible, right? And what was important for me was to find elements of joy, of strength. I I think about this all the time, and maybe this will help explain it. I was once in... Gugaletu, a township 
in South Africa. And I remember being with these white folk. It was so funny. They're like, oh my God, this is like squalor. Mm. And I saw one flower sprouting out of the dirt. Mm. And I use that as a reference point. I said, focus your eye on that flower. Focus your eye on a flower. Now, that doesn't mean that the sort of large acres of dirt that we see here, which represents guala, doesn't exist. Mm. But I want us to look for that flower. All that to say, when I say queerness is magic, it is. I also say we shouldn't have to fight so damn hard Mm. to be superheroes. We should have the ability to just be. Right. I think that the best stories are those that can hold intention, what it means to be human, our pains and our joys. Uh, without over-indexing on the pain, without only ever needing to hear a story by Black people when it evokes something in the other, the non-Black person. Um, Like, these sort of Black, these sort of stories of Black trauma are attractive Mm -hmm. because it it does something to the person who is often enacting the violence on us. We haven't even been able to be mediocre. Mm -hmm. Right. You know what I mean? Like, let us create mediocre stuff. Let us create great stuff. Mm -hmm. There are so many Black queer stories to be told, so many characters that have yet to sort of be put on screen, so many narratives, so many settings, so many body types. We ain't even touched half of it yet. If you could go back and you would have these positive, healthy models of possibility, like in media that you would have been able to see as a six-year-old, a seven-year-old, an eight-year-old, how do you think your life would be different? Oh, my God. It would be so damn different. I mean, when I was a kid, I was watching somebody's VCR porn. (laughs) (laughs) Shout out to VCR. (laughs) I was very aware of my sex and having sex body. I was very aware of my sensuality, very aware of attraction. We imagine kids as sort of these bodies of innocence. Right. When in fact, I had a lot of questions. So I believe had I saw... Two Black men, and they don't even have to be in love, but in intimate connection. I mean, not even sex, but like Mm, touching, like Moonlight, for example. Right. Mm. Moonlight would have freaked me out. Yeah. Because in a world in which I was socialized to think about Black queer desire as sinful, Mm -hmm. as wrong, Mm as against God and against community, Mm -hmm. it would have freaked me out in the best way possible because it would have made real the stuff that I was already feeling inside of myself. Right. Validation. So I'll often say, like, had I had representations like that, I probably would not have spent a good 15 years of my life trying to take myself out of here. Mm. To just keep it very real. Yeah. So with your new podcast being seen... You center the experience of Black queer men. What do you aim to do with with that particular space? And what does it mean to be seen in love? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I wanted to create like a lush-ass sonic space for us to just exist and tell our stories. I inevitably want Black, queer, gay, bi, trans men, masculine of center, non-binary people to hear something within popular culture that they can connect to. Mm. And also to say, you know, that we are here too. And that estimation, Black Lives Matter, like we are part of that Black. And I'm always adamant about um, ensuring that there is an archive of our lives. You know, I always think like, shit, 20, 30 years from now, in the same way that I can go and pick up Marlon Briggs' work, Essex Hemphill's work, 
um, somebody can come get that podcast and hear from the people who have been at the center of so much cultural creation, political maneuvering. And what that means for me, like I love, I hope that love can be evident in the care with which we try to curate this. All of the art is by Black artists. The cover art is by Black artists. Moses Sumney's song is like our cover song. I wanted to love on Black art, Black culture by doing that, putting something that can be close to love out in the world. So I, I, I'm, I'm just happy to be doing that work. So your relationship to ideas that polarized or excluded you in your youth, like masculinity and strength, how has that changed with the recent uprising going on? I don't know if you noticed the race wars outside. <laughs> right. It's like a whole thing. <laughs> so how has, like, not to bring it all back to trauma, but, like, how has just, like, watching all of this really scary shit impacted or changed or advanced your ideas of masculinity and love and Black joy? This pandemic, this storm within a storm within a storm, right? Mm. Like, what we've all experienced is isolation, loneliness. We, we've been sort of caged in, separated from others, maybe blocked intimacies. And if that don't sound like patriarchy, I don't know what else does. Mm. Wow. And I was sitting with, like, the fact that I've been grieving so much. Mm-hmm. The deaths of Black people, been killed by police or white vigilantes, lost people in my life. And for the most part, as men, what it means to not allow ourselves to feel, to experience, to name mourning, to name grief, to be honest about the fact that we are broken. Mm-hmm. In a moment like this, you know, you know, we're expected to sort of, like, get up, and keep going. Mm-hmm. That is what manhood demands. Mm. Right. So I think what I have learned is, you know, the very simple mantra that it's okay to not be okay and that freedom or at least healing, which is a process and something that we never sort of, we're always en route. We can only get through that if we allow ourselves to sit in a break. And that's like Fred Moulton's term, right? Yeah. Like, and this moment has been a break. Mm-hmm. Grief. Something that I keep forgetting is that we are all grieving together Mm. and we're all grieving so many things. And like it reminds me how when Kobe passed on Twitter, there was this picture, a video or something. It was of Allen Iverson and Dwayne Wade and they were embracing and crying and holding each other at this Kobe tribute. And it went viral, and I realized that I have seen so few representations of Black men, like, grieving and caring for each other in pop culture. That's right. I think sports is, like, a place where you see, like, the acceptance of that sort of intimacy in a certain way, like, maybe sometimes. And I know that a lot of times we see love on screen as, like, this outward experience that you have with another person or other people as, like, a potential strategy towards fixing those issues with um, masculinity and, like, looking inwards towards, like, self-love and, like, that sort of thing? I mean, because inevitably, patriarchy denies men and women their humanity. It actually pushes you further away from your truest self. Mm. And I think about love as the energy that removes the distance that exists between us and the other. So self-love would mean... It's a coming closer to the truest self. Mm. Black men, Black people are already living under the conditions of lovelessness. Mm. Mm. Period. Mm. Period. That's a fact. Mm. 
So to love the thing that you've been told to hate, that's what makes it radical. Mm-hmm. To love the nose you've been told to hate. Right. To love the skin you've been told to hate. To love the body you've been told to hate. To love the essence you've been told to hate. To love the femininity in yourself that you've been told to hate. Like to love the things you've been told to deny is radical. Mm. Um, and I, I think for me, like the moment I was able to look in the mirror and like behold all of me, the shit that I loved about myself, hated the bad things I've done, the good things I've done, and say, I love you still, is a moment that I began a process of living real. Woo! <laughs> wow. I was I feel not like I'm at church. to cry at work today. Thanks a lot. <laughs> I'm just like, maybe love is not fake. Now I'm going to go reevaluate everything I thought I knew. <laughs> Before we let you go, where can people find you and your work? On my website, it's darnellelmore.com, but... I'm on like all of the socials, which I sometimes use, uh, but it's <laughs> at more Darnell. And um, you can go to the beingseenpodcast.com and there you can have access to your art, the actual uh, podcast episodes and other fun things. Thank you. Thank you so much. Y'all are the best. Thank you so much, y'all. part of the show where we channel the one and only Tyra Banks and we take her advice and we do our best to learn something from this. Joshua Louise, did we learn something from this? (laughs) I think a more appropriate title is what did we unlearn from this? Oh, sharp. Okay, we had our Wheaties this morning. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) It's just become really apparent for me just how much unlearning that we've all had to do Like, regardless of whether you're straight or you're queer or Mm -hmm. you're black or you're brown, TV lied to us all. (laughs) (laughs) Repeatedly. Repeatedly. TV is a habitual line stepper. It's lying. And the truth ain't in it. And like Darnell said, it's not just about this idea of, like, Disney, Hallmark, MTV love. And, like, it makes me so sad that there are people who don't know that accountability and mutual respect and apologizing and amending your behavior. Like, these are things that real, true, substantial love is characterized by. Not from making bad decisions that's going to make you, like, resent him and her and your children and your family. Right. And all this other stuff. Like, that's not what anything substantial and... What's the word? What's the word? Um, Stable. Yes, that's the word. Stability over butterflies. Every Friends and family. This is where I am in my therapy journey. And it's just so hard. You know, it's really hard to retrain yourself to be like, oh, the fact that I cry every day isn't a sign of (laughs) passion. Exactly. It's a sign that something is wrong. Right. That is your body and your subconscious telling you, bitch. That's not it. Listen to me. Love doesn't have to involve trauma. Mm-hmm. That's not a prerequisite to it being true. I mean, that is the people, the person that like controls the big machine and like is pulling the puppet strings. The man. The man, Mr. Charlie. <laughs> Bobo. <laughs> that Jeff sucker turkey. <laughs> Honky pig. <laughs> But that is the system trying to keep us subjugated. You know what I mean? Right. Like, if love is a thing that you want, then be prepared to suffer. And since you're suffering anyway, 
just let me oppress the rest of you too. But like the idea and the concept of like falling in love, like a fall denotes like the regression somehow, you know, or like being caught and trapped in this thing that you have no control over. And it shouldn't be like that. It doesn't have to be like that. Yeah. Someone else who doesn't think it should be that way is Toni Morrison. May I share a quote with you? Absolutely. So Toni Morrison wrote this line in her novel Jazz, and one of her characters says, I didn't fall in love, I rose in it. Woo! And that's what love is. And still I rise. I rise. I rise. I I rise. rise. (laughs) (laughs) Ashe snaps. We've gone through all of these relationship models, all these ideas of like what the possibility of love is and like what it can mean. What is love to you? Love? (laughs) It's a word that comes Comes and and goes. goes. (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. Love to me is about freedom. That's what I was going to say. Are you really? Love is the freedom to be autonomous. Love is the yeah. freedom to have the experience on this earth that you want to have. Mm-hmm. And love is the privilege of being with and near somebody, not owning that person. Right. You know, love is supporting the person that you love, whether it benefits you or not. You know, love is the sharing of good times and bad times. Mm-hmm. Love is whatever you want it to be, honestly. Yeah. You know, whatever ends up in the both of you being supported, being heard and seen and respected and cherished, do that shit. That's what love is. Yeah. Love is the ability to figure it out. <laughs> it is. <laughs> All right, I'm going to go die alone now. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Issue is a production of Pineapple Street Studios. And love. This show was created and is hosted by Tracy Clayton. And Josh Quinn. Our lead producers are Josh Quinn and Emmanuel Hapsis. Our managing producer is John Asante. Our senior editor is Leela Day. Our associate producers are Alexis Moore and Zandra Ellen. Our intern is Brianna Garrett. Special thanks to Gabrielle Young. Also, special thanks go out to the extra voices you heard at the top of this episode. Thank you to Andy. Thank you to Addison. Thank you to Kobe. Thank you to Nia. We also had extra engineering help from Hannes Brown. Our executive producers are Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky. This show features music by Don Will. You can follow him on all the socials at DJ Don Will. And if you give him some money, he'll make you some music. You can follow me, Tracy, at Broken McPoverty, also on all the socials. And me, Josh, at Regarding Josh. Subscribe to this podcast wherever free podcasts are sold. Tell your lover. Yes. Tell your friend. Yes. Tell your paramour. Yes. Tell your mistress. Oh. Tell your side boo. Hey. (laughs) (laughs) See you next week. Bye. And I'm Josh Gwynn. You sound like such a serious reporter. Here with news highlights at 11. There's a cat stuck in a tree on Juniper. (laughs) 